crossing that million dollar revenue mark, regardless of net profit, that's something that most people will never achieve in their life. Yeah, so early on, I had to be incredibly scrappy. You know, I couldn't really be that selective with opportunities. Uh, initially, I started with short-term rentals, boats actually, boat rentals. Could buy a boat pretty cheap, rent it out in the summer, kind of for similar prices to how much you could rent a house out for. Airbnb, and and, and to, to the, today, like my Airbnb business is many, many times larger than my boat business, but early on, it was like a creative way to, to start. Hey, welcome back everyone to the Learn Like a CPA show. Today, I have a great guest. His name's Jeremy. I saw Jeremy actually a few times before we met in person at the STR Wealth Conference back in, what was it, March of 2023? We met Jeremy, right? And feels like feels like ages ago. Does it really? Yeah, it does. I, I feel mean, like I've known you forever, Ryan. I, uh, so the, I've seen you before. Uh, I've seen you before. I've seen your TikToks or your Instagram show up. I don't know if I was following you or not, but you better. I have. saw you. I saw you. I saw you walk in with Michael Chang, and there's a concept that I talk about and that I teach in a lot of my stuff is that it's that transfer of authority and it's that recommendation and that vouch. So once I saw you walk in with Michael, who we're gonna have on the podcast as well pretty soon. I was like, this guy is legit. Cause I saw you with Michael. I know Michael's a legit. I love what he stands for. I've talked to Michael a ton. It was actually my first time meeting him, but I saw him with you and I, and I said, okay, let's make this happen. I, I don't know if it, I introduced myself or what, what, what not, but I mean, we instantly hit it off. We, we became pretty good friends. I would say. We did. We did. And I think, yeah, that's funny that you see me on social, but seeing me on social doesn't make me legit by, by itself having, you know, someone who, you know, is actually preaching what they sow and, and doing what they, they show that they're doing online. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's kind of a rarity. So, you know, seeing someone, Michael, who, who obviously is legit and me and him being buddies show that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm doing things. I'm not just saying things. Yeah. And it, I don't know if it, it if it is like, I, I didn't think you were legit, but it just, it just that stamp or that seal of approval that I saw sure. that you with Michael. And that's, that's something important too, that I talk a lot about is, is what's called your sphere of influence. So, mm -hmm. you know, you out of anybody actually in that 1100 person conference probably had the most followers on social media total. I, I can't think of somebody who had more followers, who has more followers than you do, but it's all about your sphere of influence. And the way that mm -hmm. I talk about this a lot is in the number one important person at a nightclub is a DJ, right? Right. But on the street, he's just another guy or gal with tattoos and, you know, hair. Same thing at a bar, you know, the bartender is the most important person at the bar, right? So it's your sphere of influence. And cause at that conference, people know me, people know my brand, people listen to my podcast, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All on the street, I'm just nobody. <laughs> so understanding, understanding like your sphere of influence and who you have that impact on it, it goes really important. I, I could see that being a big thing for you in the next few years here. Yeah, I think I think it's funny you say that because like I, I talk so my, my girlfriend does social media and she's a, a larger social media personality. She's more mainstream for sure than I am. And her content is like running, like running content. And a lot of it's in New York City. She does running interviews. And if like we walk on the West Side Highway or around New York, like she gets she gets like people, you know, people either give her a double look and kind of like, you know, kind of like squint their eyes like, wait, is that her? Or people, you know, come up and say hi and say, Oh, my gosh, I love your stuff. Like it's if you go on a walk with her, like someone will probably come up and say something. 
Um, whereas like when I go to like a real estate conference or something or like a real estate meetup, you know, I've been to like a couple of random real estate meetups. People are like talking to me. They're like, wait a minute, do I know who you are? Like, who, I know you from somewhere. Like, where do I know you yeah. from? So it's kind of funny how it's like in our niche. Yeah. Like you're known in your niche, but guess we're not mainstream, Ryan. We're not mainstream people. We're, uh, we're niche. niche so they, they recognize Kate, Kate, her name is right. Kate. Yeah. They recognize Kate more than you. I mean, in New York city, I mean, her, yeah. I mean, her, I mean, she, she's probably gotten like a hundred million views in the last 30 days and 50 million of them are probably from New Yorkers. Mm, good point. So when I first met you, I, I, I peeped your Instagram the night we met. And then one of the things I saw was that you used to play basketball for North Carolina and I'm a pretty big basketball fan myself. I play basketball and that's a, that's a big deal. Right. So tell me a little bit about like how you went that journey, because if I'm not mistaken, that's a division one basketball school. Right. And you were there and you studied economics. Right. But how did you kind of wind up in this short term mental space? Yeah. So growing up in, uh, I moved to North Carolina when I was nine and basketball is, is everything. B-ball, B-ball is life in, in North Carolina, like truly is. You've got UNC, Duke, NC State, you know, all these, all these basketball programs with a story, like a super long history. And I grew up a huge Tar Heel basketball fan. And when I went to UNC, I was on the junior varsity basketball team. So UNC is like weird where they still have a junior varsity basketball program. Not a lot of colleges do. And essentially the point of the program is to train the walk-ons. So you don't directly walk on a varsity. Like you have two years of effectively a tryout mm. before walking on. And it's also to train the coaches. So today's head coach, Hubert Davis, was my coach uh, on junior varsity. So it was a cool experience in the sense of we played in the Dean Dome. We had all the train, you know, we had trainers that were the same varsity trainers we had rehab facilities, you know, we really kind of, it felt like we were part of a professional program, which was, which was awesome. You know, that definitely gave me, you know, discipline, but also kind of just seeing the inside of a smooth operation. Like, I mean, it was, you know, probably a hundred million dollar a year business effectively, like essentially, you know, not that far off, like a professional program in sense of, you know, how big budgets were for different things. So that was, that was really cool. And I did not make the varsity team. You know, there's 12, 13 guys on JV fighting for a couple spots that, you know, depending on the year, there may or may not be a spot for you. So a lot of it's luck. But yeah, when basketball didn't work out for me, I, you know, quickly was like, all right, I got to get an internship. Like I got to get a job. And that summer, this was sophomore year, uh, that summer, I applied for a bunch of internships and I had pretty solid grades. Like, I mean, not a 4.0, but solid grades, like, you know, 3.7 or something pretty solid. I mean, at that time, I think I was studying economics and computer science. So good fundamentals and get anything. I didn't even like the, the company my dad worked for my entire life. I applied for an internship there, got rejected from that one, literally like got rejected from every internship. So I guess I was like, all right, well, I can't, you know, I can't do nothing. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta make money. Like I'm, I, I need to make money. Like that was really the, the core of it is like, I don't have money. I gotta make money. So I started doing kind of like freelance, uh, you know, web development, just anything I could do kind of like little hustle or side hustles started essentially like a, a digital marketing, like digital products agency with a college, uh, college friend actually went very well. Like in the next year we scaled it to be a legitimate business. 
Uh, one where, you know, I was thinking about not coming back to college my senior year and just doing that full time because things were going really well. And ultimately parted ways with, so that business is actually still, it has like 90 or hundred employees nowadays, probably like revenue of 10 million, but I left. Yeah. But I left early. And to be frank, it was, and this is something I've learned about myself is that, you know, I kind of, it was me and three guys who are all like old friends. So ultimately when like a big decision came, it was them versus me was kind of what, what it came to be. And like, that was, you know, every time like a serious decision, serious conversation happened, I felt like I was outranked, outnumbered and, you know, kind of, we came to a mutual decision to part ways. And I did that and kind of went back to being a freelance, uh, freelance web developer, had clients. One of my clients was a New York based private equity startup. That was really cool. It was actually only the founders when I started working with them and, and they brought me in as their first employee. And that was you know, cool experience, but then COVID hit in March of 2020 and, you know, really the, the roof, you know, the roof fell on us literally. And we were, you know, didn't have that much money left in the bank for a moment there. We didn't think we'd be able to fundraise. And my salary was, was drastically reduced to, you know, about 2,500 bucks a month. But for those of you guys who know how expensive a New York city apartment is, it's really not enough to cover that or anything. So at that point, I was like, all right, this is, you know, several times now I have kind of worked with others or for better or worse for others. And like, yes, I do have some like startup experience and I've definitely am living, you know, my jobs have not been like the quote unquote traditional jobs, but ultimately I've worked for someone else, Mm. you know, ultimately it's been someone else's decision and other people have had control over what I do on a daily basis and and how much I make. And I'm done. Like I'm done with that. (laughs) I can't live my whole life like that. So I needed, I needed an alternative and that's, you know, that's where I found short-term rentals was, you know, really 2020 boat rentals, Airbnbs. And a couple of years later, like once I figured out, you know, short-term rentals are very, very lucrative and, you know, you can have a really lean operation where, you know, you're, it's your thing, but you know, you've got a team of virtual assistants or other coworkers, but really it was my baby, you know, my short-term rental business was mine. and you know, it worked. And here we are three years later and have scaled from, you know, probably, you know, six, you know, just hitting like six figure revenue in 2020 to like well over seven figure revenue, uh, in the last like year span and, and coming into 2023. So we said something in there. So did you finish college or no? Uh, I I did. I did. I I finished, uh, I actually only had one class after my junior year. So I, I went back I skipped a semester and then went back my final semester to take one class. So it, it sounds a lot like your entrepreneur endeavors while in college or a little bit before that gave you the confidence to go out on your own and kind of do the short-term rental thing. Because a lot of times, at least what I see, people are, and it may be the way the system or society is set up, but you know they put you into debt just so you can get a job that then you can pay back the debt that you took out only then to have your lifestyle get increased. So then you start buying houses and cars and all these assets, some assets that go down in value and you never actually get out of it, right? There, I mean, there's people that are gonna be working for somebody else for the rest of their life. What, at what point do you remember something that clicked that said, I'll never have to work for somebody else ever again? Yeah, so even though, yeah, I didn't do that kind of traditional W2 route where I got an internship and that internship turned into a job offer 
and you know that you i work that job offer and keep kind of like hip like switching jobs get a house like get trapped into that i didn't go down that path but ultimately like i did work for other people uh again it was very new ventures so wasn't i wasn't working for you know iqvia or i mean that's such a random company it's just one, one a bunch of my friends work for like i wasn't working for like um you know, fidelity or like some massive IBM, like some massive conglomerate, but still I was working for other people. And I definitely had the realization, like when my salary was cut in 2020, like where I could just get a text and be like, Hey, your salary has been cut effective immediately. And just feeling so powerless and so not in control of my life. And I hated that feeling. Like I hated that with basketball. Like honestly, basketball is a prime example of that. You only got five people on the court. I mean, you were saying before this, how you saw the guy who started over you in high school and how that like kind of irked you, you know, to gave you a competitive, competitive fire. I mean, now that, that's basketball. You know, that was, I grew up playing basketball, only five people on the court, but like, doesn't matter. You know, you might feel like you're better than them, but if the coach decides that, you know, the coach likes them more, thinks they might have more potential than you, whatever it may be, you're on the bench, you're not playing. So kind of felt that same way with, you know, my career was ultimately someone else was deciding if I was a starter and I want to decide if I'm a starter. Mm -hmm. And so something in there too, I think a lot of times people will, you always hear people say, Oh, when, when you get older, life happens or this happens, or I even hear people my age, our age, they say oh, something happened here and now I can't do X, Y, and Z or life happened to me, but not a lot of people are, allowing themselves to dictate what happens in life. Too many people allow life to happen, I, I feel like, and not enough people are taking control and, and they're taking action. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I mean, I, I'm definitely someone who for better or worse, you know, I think of an idea and I go for it. For better or worse, you know, definitely sometimes might be for worse, but I think a lot of people have those ideas and then they kind of like put them in the back. You know, they put them in the back burner and they go, well, I can't do this right now because... I don't know, I'm too busy or my job or blah, blah, blah. You know, I have something happening in my family. Whereas I've definitely been someone where like, I have an idea and that, that, that idea probably won't get pushed to the back. Like I'm going to try it and at least like, see what, you know, at least see what I can make of it. So I, I, I know this, but you, you did over a million dollars in gross revenue in, in an Airbnb business. So crossing that million dollar revenue mark regardless of net profit, that's something that most people will never achieve in their life. Um, quite, quite honestly, what, what is the makeup of that portfolio and how do you, have you decided to build your wealth and what do you, what are you looking to do going forward? Yeah. So early on, I had to be incredibly scrappy. You know, I couldn't really be that selective with opportunities and I didn't have a lot of cash. So I had to, when I started, uh, initially, I just started with short-term rentals, you know, doing three things. One, boats, actually, boat rentals. Could buy a boat pretty cheap, rent it out in the summer, kind of for similar prices to how much you could rent a house out for. Second, Airbnb. And and, and to, to the, today, like my Airbnb business is many, many times larger than my boat business. But early on, it was like a creative way to to start. Mm -hmm. uh, also, 2020 just was a freak time period for boat rentals. Like that was like the the perfect, like, yeah, the world was going to crap, but the boat rental world was crushing. <laughs> uh, things have actually, you know, a couple of years later are, are back normal. And 
not quite the case. Cause I, I, when I said, tell people I started with boats, a lot of people like, are like, Oh, I'm going to start doing that too. And I'd be like, to be frank, I would do Airbnb today. And, and the reasons why I would do Airbnb co-hosting or arbitrage. And it's what I, you know, what I did do also where co-hosting, there's no initial investment. So if you don't have a lot of cash, doesn't matter. You're just managing a house for someone else and mm -hmm. arbitrage. You can only, all you have to do is buy furniture or you can, which arbitrage is when you rent a property from a landlord and re-rent it. All you got to do is oftentimes buy furniture. I mean, I, I myself and, you know, pet people like mentees I have, like also have gone properties completely furnished where you don't even have to buy furniture or almost completely furnished. So it's just a low cost entryway into short-term rentals. And once I had a track record with co-hosting and arbitrage and like, I knew it worked. I was like, look, my goal is to buy real estate. That's like always been my goal. Like when I was a kid, you know, I daydreamed like owning cool, you know, beach houses, owning cool mountain houses, owning cool lake houses. Like that was something I, you know, I'd lie in bed at night and like think about, you know, the dream, the dream house I would have. Um, and then on top of that, I just know that there's massive benefits to owning real estate, especially being like an American and our US. I mean, you obviously, this is, you know, this is your cup of tea, but huge tax benefits to being a real estate investor. It's truly the way to build long-term wealth. So I wanted to buy, I didn't want to just, you know, be leveraging other people's properties. So to be, I had to be creative buying too. And I raised money from investors, started buying properties, did creative financing. And actually at this point have purchased eight properties and I'm under contract on my ninth. I've also bought an Airstream camper, uh, largely for the tax benefits to that, uh, that I have listed. So at this point I have 25 properties, eight of which are 25 listings, uh, eight of which are houses that, that I and, and investors own an Airstream camper. And then the rest are a mix of, uh, arbitrage mostly, and then some co-hosting properties. Uh, so one thing I want to talk about the arbitrage before we talk about the ownership, do you, have you ever done any sort of, um, not least to buy, but have you ever done any options? Cause the way I kind of see arbitrage too, is it's almost like a drive it before you buy it. Almost yeah. test drive where you can get a, a property that's really well performing and the, the landlord decides to get rid of it. You know, you're first in line to buy it. Have you ever had that situation happen? Yeah. So when I do arbitrage, actually at this point, Hey guys, just wanted to interrupt the podcast today to let you know about my Facebook group, Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. We have over 6,300 real estate investors in the community actively engaging every single day. You're going to learn all my top tips. You're going to get to network with other professionals and you're going to get to see all the past recordings and all the past posts in that Facebook group. So make sure you join today. It's going to be linked in the podcast below. And now back to the show. Yeah. So when I do arbitrage, actually at this point, a lot of like, I'll do it partially with like, I have the intention to buy in this area. Mm. So last October, I got a arbitrage property, three bed, one and a half bath, uh, single family home. And now I'm under contract on a four bed, four and a half bath under single family home, probably about five minute drive from that property. Gotcha. And so one of the things you were showing me when we were in Nashville was your, your software, you have a, a calculator that's available for use where it analyzes short-term rental deals. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I started short-term rentals, like I needed every deal to be a home run. Uh, you know, co-hosting doesn't really matter. There's money. Yeah. Yeah. Co-hosting doesn't, you know, there's, you're not putting any invest, any cash in the game. So in theory, it's like an infinite return, but arbitrage and buying are very much, you know, an investment that you need to optimize. 
So I was like very, very religious with running the numbers and early on. And, and initially I used an Excel spreadsheet for that. And, you know, I'd run the numbers on hundreds of properties with an Excel spreadsheet. And I just knew, and, and having a computer science and a digital products background, I just knew that there was a better way than an Excel spreadsheet to run you know, financial analysis on short-term rental properties. A lot of the data is on the internet. So it was just annoying to have to be on my computer, have another two tabs open on different screens, and then just copy and paste from one to the other. It was just, and also like, I couldn't just do it on my phone. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to do Excel on your phone, but it's like wow, it's practically, terrible. it's impossible. So if I want to run the numbers on Airbnbs, like I like doing it on the couch on my phone. You know, I don't like, that's what I just, I'll do it in bed. And so I built a tool, built in a software, an app where you could just do just that. I mean, it's the quickest, most efficient way to run the numbers on short-term rental properties at scale. So did launch that almost about a year ago and it's been great. I mean, we, a lot of people are using it uh, and obviously including myself and a lot of people are, you know, giving great feedback and, you know, ta telling us every day what they like about it, how we can make it better. And we're continually making it better. And is that, is that nationwide any markets it'll analyze deals for? Yeah. So, so BNB Calc, uh, we pull data from a bunch of national data providers. So maybe not like, cause we pull tax information from, you know, one data provider online, we'll pull bedrooms, bathrooms, sleep count from another data provider. So in short, yes, we have a bunch of national data providers and then AirDNA is our partner for the revenue estimate component. So wherever, you know, you can go on AirDNA and, 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 and analyze, like as long as they have it, then, then we have it in, as, you know, uh, in addition as results of. Would you, uh, so you kind of see co-hosting and arbitrage as kind of, I guess, a quicker route to financial freedom? I guess if you, if you could go back, would you have just waited to save up the money to buy your own properties or would you recommend people to do both at the same time? Or what would you, is there anything you'd go back two years ago and do differently? Yeah. So, and this is something I, I tell people that I, you know, I work with on a coaching capacity is like, it depends on your situation. So, you know, if someone's coming to me and they, they actually like their job, like they don't mind it and they're making 300, you know, 300 K a year. And they're saying, Oh, I think, you know, maybe I'm going to start an arbitrage business, you know, to build up some additional income that way. I'm like, why, you know, you make 300 K a year, you know, is a lot of that's W2. Like you could, you could get some awesome financing. You know, you can get some great mm -hmm. conventional financing and, you know, are you, and like, are you trying to replace, like, are you trying to quit your job? Like, what's your goal? If your goal is not to quit your job, then why are you necessarily starting an arbitrage business? Uh, does, does that make sense? Like for me, it was like very, like, I need my own business. I need my own cash flow. I need my cash flow from short-term rentals to yeah. far exceed like my job so I can quit my job. Like that's my first order of business. Well, I didn't necessarily say to quit my job, but like to just have freedom. Like I need to be able to have the option to do this full time. And in order for me to do that first, it's not about long-term wealth. It's about paying my bills. It's about being able to pay for food, you know? So that was my first priority was cash flow. And if, you know, a lot of folk out there, that's, that's going to be their first priority too. And in that sense, yeah, co-hosting and arbitrage are going to be the best options. If you're looking to, you know, get tax advantages of being a real estate investor to build long-term wealth, to have, you know, to make, you know, to become a multimillionaire through real estate over the next 10, 15, 20 years, like 
buying real estate is the, you know, the tried and tested way of doing that. And um, it doesn't require you to call a hundred landlords, you know, in the next seven days to make it happen. Um, that that's actually, I have the same take on that. So I, I have clients a lot of times that are trying to look what they, what they should do in real estate perspective. And they have, they're making combined household income, 300, 350 K. And, you know, they, they talk about co-hosting or arbitrage and it's, you know, to your point, they, they can get awesome financing probably. And they already have a job, you know, that probably a higher paying job. So odds are they could, instead of doing co-hosting where their hourly rate, you know, let's say I co-host a property and I get a hundred thousand dollar property I co-host and I get paid 15 grand a year to co-host that. If you take that on an hourly basis compared to what I can make hourly at my day job or through a different business, odds are it's probably less than that, less than that. So it doesn't make sense from an hour's perspective for me to actually do that. But I, I see these people that, you know, they get, unfortunately they get sold into like co-hosting or arbitrage, you know, boot camps or mentorships. And it's like, I don't think they really need that. If you're, if you're making that much money, you don't, I don't think the, the path is through co-hosting or arbitrage. It's more so towards buying your own real yeah, estate. Or, but if it's an instance of like, oh, I hate my, I hate my work. Yeah. I hate my job. I hate my boss. Like get me out of this. Then I'd say, all right, mm-hmm. okay, let's do it. That this is the way to do it. But if you're not, if, if it's really just like, I'm looking to complement my addition on my 401k. Like I know that short-term rentals are better than long-term rentals Well, then okay, buy a short-term rental and don't buy a long-term rental. Cause you know, short-term rentals are the highest performing, you know, sub sub asset class of residential real estate there is right now. So I think everyone has a different situation and like someone who's making six, 65,000 who like, you know, doesn't have through their career might take them 10 years to get to six figures. Like, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's get you going. Let's, let's put the phone to your ear and let's call a, a hundred landlords in the next two days or next, you know, maybe let's call 10 a day for the next 10 days and let's get you some deal flow. But for someone who, you know, they might go from making 350 K to 450 K through one promotion, which, you know, that promotion won't require that much more work. You know, they'll be doing the same amount of work, making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like, yeah, to make a hundred thousand dollars extra dollars in short-term rentals, that's going to be a lot of work. (laughs) Uh, You know, once you get there, you can automate it. Like you can definitely automate it, but to get, you know, to grow the business to that point, you know, the trade-off for you might not be there. Whereas, you know, someone who's 25 years old making 75 K a year, the trade-off will definitely be there for them. So I know you've hinted at it earlier on this podcast, but I I remember when we were in Nashville, you were, you were in my ear about the, the tax benefits and tax strategies. You're asking a ton of questions. What are some of the strategies that you implement in your business from a tax perspective right now? Yeah. I mean, one, I, uh, my biggest like capital asset that I buy is furniture. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I probably bought, you know, six figure furniture last year and correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, I, I obviously don't want to give wrong tax advice. Normally I say like not a CPA, and then I'll say, talk to a CPA. Whereas here I can just be like, Ryan, correct, whatever I'm saying, which is mm-hmm. great. I'm, I'm happy, uh, truly blessed, but you can write off, you know, right now you can write off hundred percent of, uh, or last year, you could write off hundred, hundred percent of furniture purchases in the first year you buy the furniture. So, you know, that was huge six figure furniture purchase to bonus depreciation. You know, you can still kind of add it back when you, um, uh, are buying, you know, buying real estate. So that, that was huge furniture purchases. Uh, second, you know, depreciation on properties, 
Um, you know, I'm sure Ryan, if you guys have listened to this before, I'm, I'm sure has talked about cost segregation studies uh, via the short-term loophole, but that's something, you know, definitely something that uh, this year I'm going to, I actually didn't, haven't done it before. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I haven't done it before this year. I will definitely do it. So mm-hmm. really just taking advantage of depreciation, uh, whether it be furniture or properties. So you mentioned a little bit earlier how you had investors for some of your properties. What, what does that process kind of look like? Yeah. So that's also why it was great for me to start with co-hosting an arbitrage was mm-hmm. because, I mean, literally, like, I'm, I kid you not, like, the way I got my first investors was I had friends over, like, again, I was, I had the boat business. So we went out on the boat. <laughs> I had friends go out. I took one of the boats, uh, took one of the boats offline for myself and had several friends on it. And literally like on the boat, I got a ping, you know, you see, probably see on social media, people who are like, Oh, what it's like to be an Airbnb host and ping get a notification of a four or $5,000 booking. And that's literally what happened. I was on the boat, mm. got a booking request. I'm like, dang, just got, you know, $5,000 hashtag passive, in- passive income. Obviously I did not say that. Um, that's a great sales tactic, dude. I'm going to yeah. steal that. My, like, <laughs> my like friend, if, you, if you had your phone connected to the aux at a party, <laughs> just like, just boom, it's like Airbnb notification, $4,300 payout. Ryan, you have just, yeah. Michelle has just requested to book your property, $4,592 and six cents straight to your bank account. <laughs> That's such a good sales tactic. All right. So go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So I literally showed, showed my friends that and they're just like, what the heck? Cause you know, I mean, $5,000. That's the same as if you're making, you know, a lot of my friends, I was living in New York after college and a lot of my buddies, even from college moved to New York. So, you know, someone who's making at 23 years old, who's making a hundred K in New York, which like, no, that's a high income earner. That's someone who's coming out of school, like has, has a good job. And which is where I was at the time, they're making a hundred K and, but what is that after, you know, taxes? Like what's your, what's your bi-monthly paycheck? It's like 2,500 bucks. Times two, so so you're only making actually five thousand dollars a month uh, from from that six figure job. So I was able to just be like, dude, I'm doing boat rentals and Airbnbs in North Carolina, and bang, (laughs) like five thousand dollars on my phone right here. And that definitely like had you know several my my friends were like, holy shit, dude, like let's like can we can we can we do it with you? Like how can we can we invest? Like what what can we do to have have some of that too? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're if you're making hundred grand single in New York, you probably you'd be lucky. You probably make out with maybe sixty eight thousand, sixty five thousand, maybe. After exactly. Taxes. So yeah. so like yeah, five thousand ish dollars a month, twenty five hundred dollars each paycheck. Yeah. If you do bi monthly paychecks. So are those those initial investors? Are those still people that are investing in deals with you today? Yeah. So yeah, early on, uh, the folk who invested with me first, like most of, every single person that. There was only a couple of people that I invested with initially who I haven't done more deals with and mm-hmm. I've bought them out. So mm-hmm. everyone I invested with early on, I was like, we're going to do more. Like if you're not in this to do more than just one, then, you know, and there was people who I had that conversation with and it, it was just obvious that they just like wanted to do one just to like have a vacation house and like say they had it and to like make some money. And they didn't really have that like burning desire to like turn this into something bigger than what it was. So those folk didn't work with and instead worked with folk who were, were trying to take things to the next level 
And um, yeah, I've done a bunch of deals with, you know, that kind of like core group that I started with. So I have some, uh, some golden rules when it comes to acquiring properties. So one of, one of those rules is I typically look for a gross revenue test, uh, anywhere between 18 to 20% of the purchase price is what I'm looking for. I also factor in about 40 to 50% operations expense, as well as I have these other little rules when it comes to underwriting a deal. Is there a certain metric that you use that you can tell, like we talked about within five minutes to know if a deal's worth worthwhile or not? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely plug it into BNB Calc and get an idea of, first of all, what AirDNA is going to look like. And then BNB Calc, when you first do it, it's pretty much about napkin math. Like you definitely have mm-hmm. to go in and tweak the numbers, but uh, I want a property. So my investment strategy has changed over the last three years, uh, largely because, you know, home prices have gone up in ways like you know, if you're an investor in something like there was kind of an Airbnb gold rush and a lot of people jumped in. And now, you know, you kind of have to be, in my opinion, like you have to be smarter. Yeah. And so the property, like I'm under contract. So early on, I mean, it was really easy to be frank to do my underwriting because I managed and co-hosted properties and I had their data, you know, and that's also one of the advantages of being a co-host or doing arbitrage is like, you have the data, you know, the seasonality, you know who the customers are, which is like a big part of the game is like, know your customers. Who are you trying to attract to come to this property? And how can you create an experience for those types of guests? So having that data, I could clearly be like, all right, you know, for instance, buying this lake house for 585K, I have a comp in my portfolio that's the same bedroom, bathroom breakdown that's making 130. Like I can assume with pretty high confidence that it should do about the same. So that was where I started was on that lake. But then unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you know, that same $585,000 lake house is probably a million dollars today, which, you know, is great for us because we bought several, but you know, it also sucks because we can't, you know, the numbers don't make sense anymore. So I had to move. So that was like my first step was like, all right, I already have data on properties. So made the underwriting really easy and then went to Florida and I didn't have any properties in Florida. So that's where I had to, you know, kind of get an idea of, you know, do the enemy test, learn how other properties, you know, look on Airbnb, check out their calendar, see the, you know, see how the consistency of their reviews, how to really develop a property or develop a process for underwriting properties in places I didn't already have properties. And yeah, the general rule, I know your question was like general rule of thumb, Uh, but then actually, so Florida, a lot of, a lot of properties, a lot of data, then started Mm -hmm. doing, Florida got really expensive. So then I switched to Smoky Mountains. And Smoky Mountains, there's a lot less data. Uh, there is data in some places, but the places where there's a lot of data, chances are the numbers aren't good anymore. Because I know we talked, you know, I was talking with Bill Faith uh, on, he, I had him on my podcast. And he was saying that like he went into, um, he went into Banner Elk and bought a house. And then, you know, he posted about it. And next thing you know, 30, 30 more people yeah. were in Banner Elk, all with like the same exact that's, type of property. That's a Bill Faith effect right there. Exactly. Yeah. He was, yeah, we were joking about that. So, you know, I think he sold because it was like he did it and then 30 other people went in. But that's what you kind of find in the Smokies is like there's like certain towns that are like just have been blown up. And then there's like a lot of random areas that don't have data. And that like scares people from going into there because there isn't data. Uh, so kind of we st- I started buying places without data, really with just like the, if we can transform this into like a crazy experience, 
I'm confident it will do well. Like, and, and, and just general rule of thumb, if I'm buying a house for 500 K, which like, that's where I've been buying. Like if you buy a million dollar house, it's hard to hit that 200 K. If you buy a $500,000 house, you can hit like hitting that hundred K is like pretty reasonable. So that's mm-hmm. really the math is like, if I'm spending 500, I want a house that can do a hundred, but like, honestly, a lot of times I want upside of like 120, like yeah. 120 upside and like conservative estimates, 80. So I just gave a really tail long winded answer to say that 500 K goes in. I want hundred K uh, coming out. Yeah. So you, so it sounds like you have the 20% revenue. Yeah. I'm sorry for yeah. going on a huge journey there to, no, to, say okay. that, <laughs> to, to show uh, how I've progressed and, and like, you know, the property I'm under contract on right now, there is comps, but like they're not professional comps and they're not doing that well to be frank. So like if I were just to comp it based off the ones in the area, mm-hmm. it like, it would be, it look like 80 K, but because I'm like, I know that if I transform this thing and make it sweet, I think it actually could do 120, but there's no exact science that's going to tell me it's going to do 120. Yep. That's where I'm like, you know, I'm confident kind of shooting in the dark at this point and kind of going into places with less data than I was before. No, and, uh, you're right about that. So all else being equal, you're more likely to get 200 grand gross revenue by buying two $500,000 properties than you are to buy a $1 million property that's grossing 200K. Right. But the yeah, thing, unless you buy a 900 K yeah. like five, 6,000 square foot house and you put like 300 K into it, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want to buy a house and put like 30, 40 K into it, it's going to probably be a 500 K house. Yeah. And, um, I guess the only thing would then be is generally the more your purchase price, you tend to see your cash on cash numbers go down, but your overall cash flow would be greater. So it's just about knowing, you know, what your situation is. We have a, a client that, um, she super high W2 earner, half million dollar W2 earner bought a bunch of properties in the Smoky Mountains for 400, $350,000. And then fast forward a year or two later. And she's, she's like, these, these properties are making a fraction of what I make at my W2 job. I would have just rather bought a one, $1.5 million property to start, you know, save, yeah. she would have saved so much more time. And so. in, in hindsight, you know, I, I feel like I could have, cause I wanted like chunks of the deals and the way I raised money was investors got equity proportionate to the amount they put in. There was incentives mm-hmm. for me to be the manager of the property from a cash perspective, but, but there wasn't incentive from a, like, you know, it was an incentive for me to have a house where I could own a higher percentage of, which meant a less expensive house. So, but in hindsight, I'm like, dude, I could have like, you know, I I could have gone bigger. I could have raised a lot of money, did some, you know, maybe, you know, whether a $2 million development or a, you know, multi-million dollar boutique hotel or something like that. But, you know, I stuck with the 500 grand houses. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, chat about uh, before we wrap up today? Yeah. uh, I guess, I mean, I guess your pod. So (laughs) kind of question goes to you. What do you want to touch on? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we covered everything I wanted to, I guess you talked a little bit about your coaching and your mentorship. What does that look like? And what, what's some of the successes that your students have seen? Yeah. So I, yeah, a year ago I created this calculator and I've had a lot of people using it, uh, you know, but it really is kind of the tip of the iceberg on, on what you need to do. Like running numbers on properties is like the first 
literally, I mean, would you consider that like the first stage getting good at that is like the first thing, but then obviously, all right, you found a property and you know, there's even more to it than just running the numbers. How do you transform the property to reach its potential? How do you set up the management operation to make it so, you know, I manage 25 listings, but I can talk with Ryan for the last hour and, you know, not have to like respond to a guest or anything like that. You know, that's, that's, there's like, that's like, you know, the, this is an A to Z process and the calculator's A, but the calculator's A to Z. It's, it's everything, uh, yeah. every step of the way. So obviously I can't work with nearly as many folks on a, on a coaching capacity and have to be a lot more selective given it's actually my time. And, you know, that's really the most important commodity we all have. So I'm a lot more selective with that, obviously, but I do work with folk and, and it's, you know, really rewarding. You know, my first mentee quit his job and is doing short-term rentals full-time. You know, my second mentee would quit his job, but he makes like 300 grand from his W-2. So mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, from a loan perspective, financing perspective, that's going to get you a lot of, a lot of uh, options. And, you know, I'm have folk well on the, on that process too, you know, having, you know, building cash flowing, uh, short-term rental businesses. Awesome. Where, where can listeners of the podcast find you and your information? Yeah. So find me on Instagram at Jeremy Worden, also on TikTok. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty responsive in my DM. So if you have any questions, definitely feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Also, awesome. also so do have a podcast and have had Ryan on it. And that just got posted. I checked three days ago. So if you want to hear me asking Ryan questions, go to my podcast, uh, either on, you know, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and, uh, yeah, you can, you can see how we flipped the script. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome, Ryan. Thank you for having me.